Electricast. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement, Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's a great pleasure I have the opportunity of presenting special guest Bruce Sackman to the show today, retired special agent in charge of the United States Department of Veteran Affairs. Bruce Ackman was served as a special agent in charge of the United States Department of Veteran Affairs, the VA, Office of Inspector General, Criminal Investigations Division for the Northeast Field Office until May of 2005, when he retired after 32 years of service. In this capacity, Bruce was responsible for all major criminal investigations involving the VA from West Virginia to Maine. During his tenure, he was involved in hundreds of investigations involving allegations of fraud, corruption, false claims theft, patient assaults, pharmaceutical drug diversions, and suspicious hospital deaths. Bruce was also responsible for supervising the successful investigation of the nation's first homicide conviction in connection with pharmaceutical research. His cases involving medical professionals who have murdered their patients have been featured on the Discovery Health Channel, CNN, MSNBC, America's Most Wanted, and on the Home Box Office. Bruce is the recipient of many awards for his investigations and for his efforts in encouraging the profession of forensic nursing. Mr. Sackman has lectured at several forensic-related conferences, state police organizations, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, universities, and medical-related symposia. He's a co-author of the book, Behind the Murder Curtain, Special Agent Bruce Sackman Hunts Doctors and Nurses Who Kill Our Veterans, as well as the article, When the ICU Becomes a Crime Scene for Critical Care Nursing Quarterly. He's also the co-editor of the newly released textbook, The Art of Investigations. And Mr. Sackman has recently been featured in an episode of CNN Headline News Special Dr. Death. Mr. Sackman is recently a retired self-employed licensed private investigator in New York City, specializing in healthcare-related matters. Under contract, he had directed major investigations for a large New York metropolitan regional healthcare system. He currently serves as the Assistant Inspector General of Nassau County, Long Island, New York, and has served as the President of the Society of Professional Investigators in New York City from 2010 to 2019. And he's also a board member of the American Academy for Professional Law Enforcement, as well as being a frequent lecturer on the topic of medical serial killers, having spoken throughout the United States, Great Britain, and Sweden. It's with great pleasure that I welcome our special guest to the show. Welcome to the show, Bruce. How are you today? Well, thank you, Jason. Wow, that was some intro. <laughs> I appreciate it. I mean, you have some extensive credentials, and I love to be able to highlight that to our audience because the magnitude of what you're about to talk about is so compelling to me that sharing this information with our audience is like a treat for me today. And I will say, I, I got a chance to look at your book. I want to ask you, in such a distinguished career, what did you find to be your most challenging obstacle in terms of prosecuting medical serial killers? You know, there were, there were, there were several obstacles. 
The first obstacle is often, but not always, uh, the denial of management, whether it be in the government or outside of the government, to accept the fact that one of their employees may be intentionally murdering their charges. This is also true with coworkers, because coworkers say, you know, I've seen that nurse, uh, Jason, save lives. I mean, I've seen him work and, and, and build up a sweat and save people's lives. And now you're telling me that he was intentionally murdering people. I find that very, very hard to believe. And I would say between the coworkers and the management, just the, having a, a sense of denial that such a thing could even happen, although it's, it's understandable, it becomes very, very frustrating. You know, I used to see this early on in my career in fraud cases, too, where a very trusted employee would be accused of fraud and the management say, would say, I can't believe it. This guy is the first guy in, in the morning and he's the last guy in at night and he works so hard. I can't believe that he's actually committing fraud. And we've actually had instances where even with our suspicious death cases, that until that doctor and nurse was actually convicted or articulated that he actually murdered patients, the management and the co-workers still refused to believe that this person was guilty of any crime. That makes it pretty difficult, pretty difficult to, um, although it's challenging, but pretty difficult to succeed. I'll say this, denial is a river in Egypt and has no place in a medical criminal investigation, right? And so for my purposes, I want to ask you, how do you battle against that type of paradigm within the VA system? Because these doctors were preying on our veterans, our most vulnerable, and celebrating. Well, the nice thing about the VA, unlike the private sector, is that the VA has an Office of Inspector General. And the purpose of it at Office of Inspector General is to ferret out fraud, waste, and abuse in the system. And of course, since we are a law enforcement organization, inside the VA, we have access to every record and we have the ability to look at things, sometimes even without subpoenas or court orders, that's within the VA. And look, we're there, you know, the the IG is there, we're there to stay and management has no option but to cooperate with us. Our private sector is a little different. Well, the private sector is a little different. That's when uh, law enforcement, of course, needs court orders and subpoenas and where the managers will lawyer up and it becomes a bit more difficult from that standpoint to conduct these investigations in the private sector. But many of them have occurred all over the world, most of them successfully. When most of us think of doctors, we think of a Hippocratic Oath nurses, we think of those who are at our side when we need them the most, when we're most vulnerable. What did you find from your experience of investigating these cases made up medical serial killers as compared to traditional doctors and frontline workers who are our heroes during this pandemic? That's such an interesting question. You know, you talk about the Hippocratic Oath and it says, I shall do no harm. And of course, the nurses have a similar oath. Their oath is called the Florence Nightingale Oath. And it's it's the same thing. And this is an environment of people who have taken an oath to save lives. And of course, the overwhelming majority of them, not only do they save lives, I know the last hospital I worked in, Jason, they were performing miracles every day. And to believe that somebody in that environment, that environment of wonderful, dedicated people, is intentionally taking lives is very, very hard. So what, what, what brings these people into the medical world, okay? Well, I can tell you this, one size does not fit all. There are different reasons and different backgrounds. For most people, it's a matter of power and control. Having the power and control of life and death over somebody. Now, if you think about it, If you were so inclined to commit a series of murders, what profession and what location might you choose? Well, you might choose a profession where people have sort of the legal power of life and death over someone. And some serial killers have masqueraded themselves as police officers. 
But what other professions do we know that have this uh, power of life and death over someone? Well, certainly in, in the medical world. Then you also want to work in a, an environment where people have taken that oath, like police officers, to protect and serve. And you want to work in an environment where people trust you implicitly. Listen to that doctor, sweetheart. Listen to that nurse. They have your best interest in mind. And of course, 99.99% of the time, they do have your best interest in mind, okay? How about working in an environment where people don't question? You know, they go in a hospital and they, they, they start, the nurse comes over and starts injecting them with something and they don't ask questions. You know, they're hurting, they want to get better. So they, they, they take their treatment on a leap of faith. And how about working in a location where you're alone on a ward at about three o'clock in the morning and there's just about no supervision and it's maybe a nurse and a nurse's aide and then you could take that curtain and put that curtain around you and the patient and nobody's gonna really see what's going on. How about working in an environment that the police do not want to go into? Look, most cops don't become cops because we're good in chemistry and biology, okay? <laughs> so we are very easily intimidated by not only by the science, but by the law. You know, what is this HIPAA thing? You know, this uh, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. What records can I get? What records can I get? Do I need a subpoena? Do I need a court order? I don't even want to go in the hospital. I don't understand the technology. I don't understand the science. So this is what happens. This is what happens when the police come. All right. These allegations normally start by some very brave and courageous doctors and nurses who say something like this. You know, every time that nurse Jason is on duty, the death rate goes up. Jason takes a week vacation, the death rate goes down. Well, does that mean that Jason is a serial killer? It does not. Hey, maybe Jason has the most complex cases. You know, maybe there's another reason for it. But that's where this whole thing starts. Then the next thing that happens is people say, you know, these patients that expired, they weren't expected to expire when they did. Now, if you've ever had a loved one in, in the hospital, an elderly person, and you knew that they were near death and the staff knew they were near death. So death was not unexpected. But these people that this nurse Jason seems to be working on, we never expected them to expire when they did. We never expected them to code when they did. And now all of a sudden they're dying unexpectedly. You know, natural death, natural death was described to me like this. It's like you shut off a fan and the blades gradually, gradually stop. But these people, it's like turning off a light bulb they're bright one minute and dark the next. And nobody expected that. So now you're an honest nurse or physician and you have concerns and you go to management. Oh, that's going to go over big. Management is going to say, well, I want to ask you a question. Did you actually see this nurse Jason kill anybody? Well, no, I didn't see nurse Jason actually kill anybody. You know, I mean, so... Maybe there's a legitimate reason why the death rate is a little bit higher from him. Yeah, but, you know, these patients weren't expected to expire and, and, and all the other arguments. So the management will say this. Okay, I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to appoint a board of our very best physicians, and we're going to have them look at some of these cases that this nurse Jason was working on. So who's on this board? All the employees of the hospital, none of whom want to see anything bad happen to the hospital, all of whom report to the president, and all of whom have a vested interest in saying there's nothing wrong. So then they come back and they say this, well, you know, nurse, thank you very much for your concern. You know what we did? We appointed a board of our best doctors, and they looked at these cases, 
why sometimes we even did an autopsy. And you know what? We determined, because these patients were so sick, that they all expired as a result of their natural disease processes. Any one of them, because they're so sick, could have died from their natural disease processes. And our distinguished board made that determination. Well, maybe you're not happy with that. Well, I want to ask you a question there, nurse. Is your background so perfect? I mean, if we drug tested you right now, are we going to find any illegal substances in you? Is your license up to snuff? Is all your training up to snuff? Have you gone through and certified everything? The only reason why I'm asking, nurse whistleblower, is that when you make these allegations, you sort of become under investigation yourself. So just, just think about that before you go any further. Well, that does deter people clearly from going further, but sometimes there's incredibly brave nurses and doctors who just keep going on. And that's when they used to call my office or you know the police out, out, outside of the VA but it took a lot of courage. You know, there's a famous story about two nurse whistleblowers in Texas, right? And they're in a remote part of Texas uh, called Kermit, Texas, in the oil basin. And you know how hard it is to find doctors for Kermit, Texas? Well, the manager will tell you, you know, we have to go all the way to the Philippines to find doctors and nurses. So you know what? If we even do such a great background investigation, excuse me, we're lucky we even have doctors at this hospital. And these two nurses, who happen to be the entire compliance department, they go to management and they say, we think this doctor is a very bad doctor and he's harming people. And the management says, do you know how far we have to go to find doctors here in Kermit, Texas? Go back to the office and uh, forget it. There's nothing wrong with this doctor. So these two nurses say, what the hell are we going to do now? We went to management. They poo-pooed it. So one nurse says, I got an idea. I got an idea. Let's send an anonymous letter to the Texas State Medical Board all about this doctor. And they do that. And the doctor gets wind of it. And boy, is he pissed. So he calls up one of his patients, who happens to be the local sheriff. And he says, Sheriff Roberts, I think these women are intentionally trying to hurt me and my reputation. And I think they may have violated the law. And the sheriff says, don't worry, doc, I'm on the case. He gets a search warrant for their hospital computers. And he determines that they were the author of this anonymous letter to the state. He has them arrested and prosecuted for misuse of official information, which is a felony in those parts. So they get fired, they get arrested, they lose everything, they go to trial. The jury's out for about 20 minutes. They come back and they say, are you kidding me? These nurses deserve a medal for what they did, not to be criminally prosecuted. But what kind of message because that's chilling. Right? What kind of message does that send out to anyone else who suspects something? This is the kind of message that says, hey, you hear about those two nurses in Texas? Did you hear what happened to them? You hear they got arrested? Oh, yeah, they won at the end, but you know how much they lost until they 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 finally won? Do you want to go through that? I don't want to go through that, okay? And then there was this case of a Dr. Mario Jakalovich in uh, New Jersey. Mario was charged not with killing his own patients, but killing a doctor who was a competitor of his, that doctor's patients. And it was a big sensational trial. And the hospital had to change their name three times and they still went out of business. You want that to happen here, nurse? You you want us all to lose our jobs? Do you really want this to happen? I don't think so. So you know what's the best thing to happen here? It's the best thing to happen is maybe we could find nurse Jason a job at another hospital. 
And we won't tell that other hospital what we suspect with this nurse. We'll just give him a good recommendation and we'll move him on. Let's move him along. There's a famous case of a nurse named Cullen in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Nurse Cullen went through nine hospitals until he was finally prosecuted, okay? Hospital A never said anything to Hospital B. They never said anything to Hospital C. And they all suspected something. That's appalling. It sounds like a lack of accountability. You know what? I must say, for the first time ever in the Republic of Germany, there's a case involving a, a nurse. I worked with the German police on this who admitted to killing over 100 patients, but we actually think he killed closer to 300 patients. And he traveled from hospital to hospital to hospital, like three hospitals involved, all right? And for the first time ever, those managers who suspected something but never said anything either to the police or the next hospital, they have been charged with aiding and abetting the murders. We'll see if they get convicted or not. It's still ongoing. Well, it's still ongoing. There's negligence on the part of the administrators, right? For oh, not doing civil, what they should have done. I mean, you know, we're talking about the entire system. The medical system is not set up to hold its own accountable under these circumstances. Right. But as you know, Jason, there's a big difference between civil liability and criminal. And for sure. those in the audience that don't know, civil cases just require a preponderance of evidence, which is like 51% of the evidence. Criminal prosecution is a much higher bar. So there have been cases where the medical serial killers have been found liable, all right, but they were not criminally prosecuted or the criminal prosecution failed because they didn't have enough evidence to show that beyond the reasonable doubt. There's a case of a, a VA nurse, it's in my book actually, in Columbia, Missouri, all right, and we refer to him as an alleged uh, medical serial killer because of this. We suspected him of killing about 60 of our nation's heroes at the Harriers Truman Medical Center in Columbia, Missouri. We actually indicted him for 13 murders. Then we had a problem with the toxicology. And the prosecutor, the local prosecutor, withdrew the charges and wouldn't pursue the case. The family sued civilly, and the judge says, yeah, I think Richard Williams is a serial killer. But that was a civil case. And sometimes that's the way these things wind up, unfortunately. And, and there have been rare cases where people have been actually, usually not acquitted at trial, but usually have the, uh, the charges dropped often based on the science, on the toxicology, you know, but thank goodness the overwhelming them, uh, overwhelming number of these killers have been successfully prosecuted. By the way, yeah. if you're interested, the number one serial, medical serial killer in the world, the undefeated champion of medical serial killers is Dr. Harold Shipman in England. Dr. Harold Shipman killed about 300 patients and he made house calls, mostly elderly people. And he gave them an overdose of morphine. And the way he got caught is that at the end, he got greedy and started to change their wills and make himself the beneficiary. And one thing led to the next. But just to show you how difficult these cases are to make, Harold Shipman in England is the one and only physician to ever be successfully prosecuted for murdering his patients, going back to the Norman Conquest, okay? So there's one, and that's him, because these cases are incredibly difficult to make. Yeah, there, there, there have been you know, doctors who have killed their wives, their girlfriends, and all that sort of stuff. But to kill this many patients, he was the only one. And they're very difficult to make. And I know because it, they've taken years of my life to make. Do you think that's because of the bias inherent in society to automatically validate and trust the medical profession? 
that causes the ambivalence to want to prosecute the bad apples that might exist and prey upon the innocent? I, I think that has changed to some degree, but I, I think that that's always there, especially when, like I said earlier, the co-workers basically support this person. You know, in, in my book, I, I talk about nurse Kristen Gilbert. Kristen Gilbert, we suspect, killed about 30 veterans, and she used epinephrine, which is adrenaline. And her co-workers, with the exception of these two fantastic whistleblowers who helped us out, they were convinced that she was innocent all along. But I'll tell you something interesting about Kristen Gilbert. After the trial, and this was a six-month trial, every day in court for six months, okay? After she was found guilty, the two nurse whistleblowers returned to their jobs. Do you think they were greeted as heroes? <laughs> Just the opposite. Their coworkers were mad at them. They said, you see what you did to this hospital? Now when people drive by, they don't say, Oh, that's the VA hospital where they save lives and they have all these dedicated people. You know what they say? That's the hospital where that serial killer, Kristen Gilbert, worked. I'd never go into that hospital. You see what, what you did? Why did you have to call the IG? Why did you have to make this happen? Why did we have to read about this in the newspaper every day for six months? That's terrifying. It's horrific, in my opinion. Like... Just to think, how did you first get involved in these? Because I know well, you know, it's it's got to be a unique story to tell from your vision. It is a unique story, you know. So I was responsible, as you said earlier, for all the, uh, the major crimes involving VA hospitals from West Virginia to Maine. And I had this incredible smorgasbord of cases to pick and choose from. I had fraud cases, bribery cases, uh, theft, of, theft of drug cases, uh, you name it. I, I had plenty of work to keep me busy. Then all of a sudden, one day, I get a phone call from the chief of psychiatry at the Northport Long Island VA Medical Center. And she says, you know, Bruce, you're not going to believe this. Well, we have a physician working here. And there's a new story that he spent time in prison for poisoning his coworkers. So I'm looking at the phone like, oh, geez, this is like some kind of psychological joke or something, you know, or is this April 1st? And this is like an April Fool's Day trick. I said, how can anybody pass a government background investigation and become a doctor who's treating our nation's heroes who spend time in prison for poisoning people? Seems impossible. Well, I was wrong. That's exactly what, what did happen. And this is the story of a doctor whose name is Michael Swango. And when Michael Swango was in medical school, his fellow students referred to him as double O Swango licensed to kill because they actually thought in medical school that he may be intentionally harming some of the patients that he visited, but they couldn't prove it. And they went to the Dean and the Dean said, what do you guys know? You're only students, I'm the Dean you know what, maybe he needs a little bit more training. Uh, we'll keep him here for like another six months. And then, then he could graduate. He'll graduate late and then he'll be fine. And that's what happens. And then he gets an internship at Ohio State University Medical Center, a great hospital. And all of a sudden, guess what happens? Patients start expiring unexpectedly, including this one one young student, her name was Cynthia McGee. She got in a car accident with another student and she's actually improving until she gets a visit from Michael Swango. Then she dies unexpectedly. But Michael Swango doesn't get charged with that. The student who hit her with his car, he gets charged with vehicular homicide, but he didn't kill someone. How do you untangle that ball of yarn? I mean... <laughs> legally i can imagine that created a lot of headaches and nightmares and prosecution and accountability it certainly did it certainly did so now swango ohio state university is doing an internal investigation but they can't prove that he harmed anybody because it's really difficult to prove that 
And then Swango leaves because they're not going to renew his internship. And he goes to his first love, which is actually being an EMT, because he loved the excitement of crashes and codes and being on the scene of a multiple shooting, a car accident or something. And then one day he invites his coworkers in for some donuts and they have donuts and they go home and they all sit that night. And he's calling them up. He's saying, tell me, tell me all your symptoms. Tell me everything that happened to you. See, he's reliving the experience of what he did to them. About two weeks later, he brings in some iced tea, but these EMTs weren't stupid. You know, they said, oh, thanks, Michael. Um, we'll, we'll have it later. And they have the iced tea tested and it's loaded with arsenic. So they call the local police and the police do a search warrant in his home and they find arsenic and books on poisoning and the whole nine yards. And he, he goes, he gets arrested. He goes to trial. He gets three years in jail. Now, do you think that somebody with that background in the United States of America could come out of prison and become a physician, not just treating anybody, but treating our nation's heroes? Seems impossible to believe, doesn't it? Impossible to believe, but it's absolutely true. And, you know, being a sociopath, psychopath, whatever path you want to give this guy, he was exceptionally charming, well-spoken, and had a great ability to forge documents. And he actually forged documents to show that he only spent six months in jail for a barroom brawl, but the attorney general of the state restored his civil rights. And nobody verified it. They said, okay, great, come on board. Next thing you know, he's working on a, in a hospital on the West Coast. He meets a, a, a nurse. Uh, her name was Kristen Kinney. Beautiful, beautiful, super intelligent nurse. They get engaged. Everything's going well until the news story comes out that he spent time in prison for poisoning his coworkers. And then everything goes to hell and they break up. And she goes back to Virginia to be with mom and dad. And she says, You know, it's funny. When I was living with Michael, I was getting these headaches, you know. But I feel better now. And then all of a sudden, ding dong, the doorbell rings and it's Michael. And he's back in her life. And she's getting headaches again. And then one day she says, I just can't take it anymore. She goes to the park. She takes out a gun. She blows her brains out. Well, you can't blame Swango for that, can you? Well, actually, you can. Because even though the body was cremated, family kept a lock of her hair and we tested that hair. And it was loaded with arsenic. See, Swango was even poisoning his own fiance because everybody's a target of opportunity for this guy. Well, to make a long story short, he winds up at the VA Medical Center out on Long Island in, in, in Northport, Long Island. And how did he get there? Well, he actually had a residency at Stony Brook University which has a teaching arrangement with the VA hospital and they send physicians from Stony Brook to the VA. And guess what uh, discipline that was that he had? It's hard to believe. He actually was going for a residency in psychiatry, which meant he had to go in front of a board of trained psychiatrists and convince them that he should be in that program you know, with that barroom brawl bullshit and all that. And they bought it. And the next thing you know, the guy was at the VA. So after I get this phone call, I hop in the car with one of my agents. I said, I got to meet this guy. And we go in there and he's at the VA and the guy looks like a movie star. Like he just came off the golf course. He's wearing those aviator style sunglasses. He's well tanned. You know, honestly, if you didn't know better, and if your daughter brought him home, you'd say, what a catch. This guy is an ex-Marine doctor. I mean, fantastic. Who would ever think? Who would ever think that he's capable of doing what he did? And I start talking to him, and he's giving me this whole barroom brawl bullshit. And, you know, I'm going along. Oh, that's so interesting. 
you know, Doc, while I'm hearing this, can I look around your apartment? And that's when his attitude completely changed. I had to leave. And I call up the U.S. attorney and she says, well, Bruce, you don't have any evidence that he committed any crimes in the Eastern District of Long Island, do you? I said, well, no, not yet. She says, well, then I can't give you a search warrant. And the next thing you know, Michael Swango's gone, just leaves the VA, winds up in Zimbabwe, Africa. In Zimbabwe, Africa, where there's a real shortage of physicians, he killed women and children and pregnant women, poisoned his landlady. And then he wanted to move on to one of the Middle Eastern countries, but he had to come home to get his passport renewed. And that's when we arrested him, but not for murder because we didn't have any evidence that he murdered anybody, but we arrested him for every federal agent's favorite crime, false statements to the government, (laughs) all right? You lied to the government, boy, that's a felony. You lied to a special agent, that's a felony. So he lied to me and he lied on his paperwork. And that gave us a window of about two to three years while he's in prison for false statements to find out if he murdered anybody on Long Island. Now, I had never conducted a murder case before in my life. I was on a job at that time for 20 some odd years. I've done every white collar crime and death case and drug diversion you could imagine. Never did a homicide case. And my boss says, look, Bruce, you know, you're a pretty good investigator, but you're going to need help. So we're going to introduce you to somebody. And they introduced me to this forensic pathologist named Dr. Michael Bodden. Now, Michael Bodden, he used to have a television show called Autopsy on HBO. I don't know if you remember that show or not, but the guy is incredible. I haven't. What's that? I'll have to catch up on that and check that out. So I laid out the whole story for him and he says, Bruce, don't worry. I'm going to teach you how to do this. And learning homicide investigations from Dr. Bonin was like learning physics from Albert Einstein. I mean, you really couldn't get a better teaching. I said, well, how do we do this? I mean, how is this? All right, this is what we're going to do. He says, you know, Swango only spent a short time at the Northport VA. I want you to gather up every medical record of every patient that was at the Northport VA when Swango was there because Swango used to walk around and visit everybody, you know. He just had free reign of the place. And then we're gonna assemble a team. And who's gonna be on this team? He says, well, obviously I am, of course, as a forensic pathologist. And then we're gonna recruit a physician who's an expert in chart review. And he's gonna look at these patients' charts and he's gonna make a determination if by just reviewing the chart, these patients' deaths may have been of a suspicious and untimely nature. Then we're going to get a toxicologist, and this toxicologist is going to have to review all the all the medications and the blood work and everything involved. And then we're going to get at that time, which was a relatively new profession, called forensic nursing. And these are nurses that are trained in both the science of nursing and forensics. And they are phenomenal. Oh, they were incredible. And we gather up all these records and they, this team decides, you know, there are about five patients here that we want to take a further look at. So this is what we're going to have to do, uh, Bruce. We're going to have to exhume their bodies. Do we really have to exhume bodies? And Michael Bond said, look, Bruce, You don't ask a barber if you need a haircut, and you don't ask a medical examiner if you need an exhumation. So yes, we're going to have to exhume these bodies. So we had to get court order and then go to the families, and the families were wonderful. But imagine getting a visit like this. You know, uh, hi, uh, my name is Bruce Sackman. I'm from the Inspector General's Office of the Department of Veterans Affairs. Well, we have reason to believe that your dad's death may have been of a suspicious nature at the VA. Can we have your permission to go to the cemetery and dig up his body and uh, conduct tests? Imagine getting a visit like that. That's a altering event, wouldn't you say? Yes. The families were great. You know, on occasion, the families would actually want to be there. 
they would actually want to see the the, the exhumation. I mean, they, they they couldn't see the autopsy, but they, they could see the exhumation. So I find myself in a cemetery, I've never done anything with the backhoe and they're digging up the grave and they're pulling the coffin up. And then I see Michael Bonin, he, he jumps into the grave site and he starts taking soil samples. I say, hey, what, what are you doing? He says, well, you see, we have to see if there's arsenic in the soil or not. Because if there's arsenic in the soil and then we find arsenic in the body, they're gonna claim, well, that wasn't a poisoning, it's the arsenic from the soil that just kind of creeped into the body. Then I find myself at the Suffolk County Medical Examiner's Office. That's a cultural experience if you've never done that before. But the bodies are open and body parts on the side. I mean, some people have a tough time with it. Luckily, I, I was okay. But one time we, we brought in two assistant U.S. attorneys. They walked in, turned around, and ran out. <laughs> it was too much for them. They ran the other way. They're like, I'm done with this. <laughs> it was too much for them. And then Michael Bonin says, now you see, Bruce, on these death certificates, you know, many death certificates aren't even worth the paper they were written on. Because often what happens is they put this catch-all, like myocardial infarction or heart disease or something like this, without even knowing exactly what the cause of death was. And many times, even the person's personal physician doesn't even sign it. Somebody else signs it. But they need to put down something, so they put down it. Then he takes out the heart and he says, you see this heart? There's nothing wrong with this heart. This guy didn't have any heart disease. This death certificate is completely false. Well, what's the cause of death? That's when the toxicologist comes, okay? The FBI lab didn't want to handle this case. So we had to go to a private lab called National Medical Services. They're outside of Philadelphia. It was very expensive, as you can imagine. Not every police department has the resources of the federal government. And they made a determination that inside these bodies were one of two substances that there was no reason for them to be in those bodies at all. One was succinylcholine. Uh, it's a paralytic. It's, the hospitals call it sucks. If they want to intubate you, it actually paralyzes you while they put a tube down you. That'll take you out. And the other one, of course, was epinephrine, which is adrenaline, which if not used properly, will speed up the heart and, and kill you. And the question is, can you find traces of that in embalmed tissue? Because remember, these patients had all expired at least a year or so before. And, you know, there was embalming fluid in there. So it was a, a lot of work. And I'll never forget Dr. Reeders, who was the president, now his son's the president, National Medical Services, says, hey, Bruce, you know, we have this new machine. It's called the High Performance Liquid Chromatography Tandem Mass Spectrometer. Holy shit. How's it work? Ah, oh, look, Bruce, you know, you wouldn't understand. You couldn't understand. Maybe you shouldn't understand. But what we do is basically we take a sample and we run it through all these tests. It looks like something on the Willy Wonka's machine, and it comes out and you say, boom, succinylcholine, boom, epinephrine, you know, and I'm oversimplifying what takes months. And now it's time for Swango to get out of jail. Well, he thinks that, you know, he beat, he beat these murders and he's going to hop on a plane and go to Saudi Arabia where he wanted to continue being a physician. Not so fast, not so fast. Because two things happen. One, we indicted him for a number of murders at the Northport VA Medical Center. And secondly, something terrific actually happened. The United States entered into an extradition treaty with the government of Zimbabwe. They have an arrest warrant for Michael Swangle for killing women and children. And they're just chomping at the bit to get their hands on this guy. So we said to Swangle, look, you could plead guilty and be sentenced here in the United States. But if you go to trial, and even if you win, we're just going to put you on a plane and drop you off on the tarmac in Zimbabwe. <laughs> and they're just waiting for you, buddy. So he decided to plead guilty. So he pled guilty to a number of murders at the uh, Northport VA Medical Center. And later, he actually pled guilty to killing Cynthia McGee at Ohio State University. And at his sentencing, this is interesting, because at his sentencing, 
the judge asked him to articulate in, in his own words how exactly he murdered these people. And he said that he used the paralytic. He didn't mention the drug. He used the paralytic. And that's what brought these people into cardiac arrest and killed them. And the families are there. You know, the families of the victims are there. Just, and that's when it gets really tough. And they get an opportunity to speak. But he stood there at attention. He stood there emotionless. Because what happens to the victims doesn't mean anything to these killers. The only thing that means something is the excitement they get. They get a rush. Yeah, that's right. From the kill. They couldn't care about the patients one way or the next or their families one way or the next. In fact, you know what Swangler used to like to do? After he murdered somebody, he would call up the families and give them the bad news. And he would go into great detail about how dad had suffered during this last 30 or 45 minutes of his life because this was another bite of the excitement for him. First bite was actually killing them. The second bite was calling the families. So Swango gets sentenced to three consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. And then the judge said something I had never heard before or since in my 32 years with the government. The judge said, Dr. Swango, he says, right now, there is no parole in the federal system. But if Congress should change the law and grant parole, your parole is denied in advance. So <laughs> there's no way this guy's getting that. And he's in supermax federal penitentiary where, you know, the worst of the worst are. He's, he's, still, he's, he's still there today. So that's how I got into the world of medical serial killers from the Swango case. And, you know, when you're on the job and you have one successful case, next thing you know, you're the expert. <laughs> yeah, I had one case. Well, now I'm the expert. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, these other cases started popping up all around. Just listening to you share your story, a couple of things. I'm, I'm writing notes as you're talking. That's just what I like to do. One of the things I'm thinking here, drawing everything together, is the amount of resources that are required to bring the person to justice, right? The denial of prosecution within the system that there's a problem even there amongst doctors and nurses and the hospital administration. And then you're talking about a, a crafty serial killer who's intelligent enough to become a medical professional. In this case, the guy got sloppy because he had fraudulent records and he had a prior history in jail and he went to Zimbabwe. I mean, what about the standard run of a mill nurse or doctor who has a few, a few deaths on their, on their watch, but they don't have all the sloppiness. How do you get to those people? That's very difficult because the average medical serial killer, I would say, kills somewhere like 30 plus people. And the reason is because they kill so many people and nobody questions it. Um, there's a famous serial killer, medical serial killer named Donald Harvey. Donald Harvey worked for the VA and in the private hospitals. And Donald Harvey says this, he says, after I killed the first 15 and no one even questioned me, well, I started to think I was ordained by the almighty himself to do this. And you know what? It's not so crazy if you kill 15 people and none of your coworkers and all even raise an eyebrow. It's very very difficult. We have to wait for that brave co-worker, doctor, physician to start the ball going. And without that, we don't, we don't really know. We don't well, know. the other thing this would make me think of is if Stephen King's listening to our episode or if he's read your book, he's definitely motivated to write a new, a new thriller, right? <laughs> Once you check in, you may not check out. Like, I mean, it's, it's the, the classic horror story on every level that you you're talking about in real life and the resistance of the system, though, the resiliency of your efforts versus the resistance of those within the system and the serial killer actors who game the system for their advantage, where they either shift hospitals, going to nine different places, going to foreign countries. It's like how much blood do they, you need them to have on their hands before you can actually build your case and you need the power of the government, the federal government, and you need a lot of opportunities. Opportunities and people with open minds. 
you right. It's very easy for law enforcement to walk away from this case. Imagine if you're an officer, Jason, and you go to the president of the hospital and he presents a report to you. And in this report shows that all these people died as a direct result of their natural disease processes. You'll return to your boss and say, hey boss, there's nothing here. The hospital did a thorough investigation. They, they looked at all these cases and everything. Everything is, is Everything has a logical explanation for it. Most police departments are going to turn around and walk away, you know, and, and I, I understand that. But that's one of the reasons why all over the world uh, people get away with this until they kill so many people. You know what? There was hospitals, more than one, where on a nurse's shift, so many people die. The co-workers refer to that nurse as the angel of death, you know, doctor death. I mean, while wow, they're still working there. I wrote those words on my paper as you were talking, actually, earlier. I wrote angel of death because that's yes. the thought that comes to the average mind when you hear these things. And they're still working there. You know, in, in, the, in the case of uh, Richard Williams, the alleged serial killer. The management there were totally supportive of Richard Williams and totally unsupportive of the investigation. And what the man, the, uh, the, head, the director of the hospital said, I have a great idea. Let's assign another nurse to work alongside Richard Williams. And when the other nurse was working alongside Richard Williams, the death rate went down. But that second nurse had to take a few days off, had some personal things to do. Guess what happened? The death rate went back up. So all of a sudden, everybody in the hospital was calling this guy the angel of death. Well, the patients hear this. And one patient said, I'm getting the hell out of here. And he runs out of the VA and the VA police run after him and bring him back. And guess what happened to him that night? He died unexpectedly. Horrific. Incredible stories. Horrific I mean, stories. your story is your, your personal story that you've shared today on our show because we've already gotten running low on time. But I have to tell you, this is one of the most compelling guests I've had. You're one of the most compelling guests that I've had on my show to talk about such an interesting topic that I believe is so important to share with our audience because how many people are actually thinking when their elderly parent or sick relative or if they had a car accident, you know, they go to the hospital. And someone's going to prey upon you when you're on your weakest moment, waiting for recovery or waiting for healing. And uh, it's terrifying to think that this, it, I mean, it, it's, I, I can't say it's terrifying to think because anything's possible. And, and that's what I believe you're shedding light on with the help of whistleblowers and very courageous people who are willing to dedicate and sacrifice everything for the truth to get out. And your bravery and courage to dedicate your career to this is is how these things come to the forefront. And I want to thank you for, you know, your distinguished career and exposing these um, horrendous situations of these people preying on our most celebrated and victim, you know, our celebrated victims and our most honored people uh, from all respects. So from my vantage point, it's like having you on is like, for me, at least a breath of fresh air and truth and, and, and candidness and disclosure. We need this. We need to have you, on the airwaves, sharing your experiences, sharing what, you know, the weaknesses of our system so that we can make it stronger. Has there been any efforts as a result of your book or as a result of you going on different shows? Has there been any efforts on the part of lawmakers, administrators, people within the, the law enforcement industry to try to shore up the holes that exist in the system? That Yeah, actually, as a result of that Nurse Cohen case, which I was not involved with, but as a result of that nurse Cohen case, 35 states have made it much easier now for hospital A to report their suspicions to hospital B, okay, without fear of any legal backlash from that. Well, that's a starting point. <laughs> that's, that, that is a great point. But just because the law allows you to do that doesn't mean they're going to do it. You know what I mean? So- it's about duty versus obligation, right? Right. And, and I in my mind, other... those words are synonymous. If you have a duty, you have an obligation. You should fulfill right. your obligation and do your duty. Other people 
they'll look the other way because of the paperwork or the fear of what could happen to them or what's going to be the reputation of our hospital after this occurs kind of thing, like you said earlier. Yeah. You know, another one of the good things to come about from that Swango case is that the whole practice of medical credentialing has improved dramatically. So now hospitals have teams of people that verify credentials, make sure all the credentials are honest and up to date, all the licenses, training, and everything is up to snuff. And that was a big change as a result of the Swango case. So that's a good thing that came from Swango. Bruce, I want to thank you so much for sharing everything with us today. I I love this topic, and I think it's such an important dialogue to have. Sharing your findings and your experiences, if our audience wants to reach out to you, what would be the best way for them to reach you? Best way to reach me is is through my website, which is the same as the name of the book, BehindTheMurderCurtain.com. And you could, there's a link there for an email. And, you know, I get emails from people all over the world, some very, very interesting stories. And I, I love to hear from people. And if people read the book, I ask them to just put a few sentences of a review on either Amazon or Goodreads or something. So I get the feedback. Of what I'll be happy to do that as well. Cause I reviewed your book for the show today and I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate and that very much. Thank you. I mean, from my vantage point, the fact that you have gone through such a, a storied career of, I mean, you sharing your stories that you put into this book and prosecuting these har- horrendous, horrible people, <laughs> it's at least getting them off the streets but more needs to be done in order to advocate for patient rights and VA rights and for those who are the most helpless during times of need. And I think that that's where you're really shining because you're shining light on the problem. That'll help us to identify it for future purposes and start trying to tackle these issues. I just want to thank Bruce Sackman for coming on the show today, sharing his amazing stories regarding medical serial killers, his experiences just in terms of this 32 years of service and going through assembling teams and resources to investigate crimes and exhuming bodies. It it sounds like the kind of stuff that Netflix should get a hold of. Real life, we're really looking at something that's the tip of the iceberg. I'm sure when you think of the VA, you think of government resources. Well, what about state entities and what about private entities where those resources aren't necessarily being dedicated? I, I highly recommend everyone to check out this book. Behind the Murder Curtain. The website is www.behindthemurdercurtain.com. All that information will be in the show notes. Check out Bruce Sackman. I will just say that when you think of going to the hospital or if you think of going to your doctor, especially during this pandemic, we, we really have a lot of respect for our medical professionals for all the sacrifices they've done. And it's shocking to think that there are members of that profession who would prey upon our weakest and, and most innocent. And I think Someone like Bruce is a true hero in real life, taking on these people and challenging their version of the facts to scrutinize them and and create prosecutions and criminal investigations from West Virginia to Maine. So check out this stuff. And I wouldn't be surprised to hear more about this in the future as things unravel and as law enforcement becomes more tuned to these investigations. I'm happy to have this on the show because I think it's so important to share these particular instances of truth that need to be exposed so that our system can prevail in the long run. So thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Check out Behind the Murder Curtain. Research this stuff if you're curious about it, because it's so important to know about medical serial killers, who they are, how are they found, what type of methodologies do they use to murder their patients. You may just be able to prevent something in the future yourself if you're involved in a in a questionable circumstance for one of your relatives or loved ones or anyone else that you might know about. Stay positive because when you're positive, anything's possible and, and we will have more programming for season five. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms and know that the universe is always yours to explore. 
With the Baker's Plus card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win! Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electricast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Electricast. Electricast.